Welcome to the podcast ministry of Pilgrim Baptist Church. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. We pray that the truth from the Word of God speaks to your heart during today's message. In Romans chapter 5, verse number 18, the Bible says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. The question this morning is, does all men in the first half of the verse mean all men in the second half of the verse? If I can draw your attention to that, look at it again. All men, first half of the verse, and then all men, the second half of the verse. Now, with a straight face, a Calvinist will tell you that the second half of the verse, that all men, does not mean all men. They make no bones about it. And they say that because if the all men means all men in the second half of the verse, that would mean you believe in universalism which means everybody gets saved. So they will say that you have left the tracks of sound doctrine and you have just emptied hell of every unbeliever that's out there if you believe that all men really and literally and truly means all men in the second half of the verse. Now, I don't believe in universal salvation. Neither do you. But here's a, here's, a, here's a question, here's a theological question that I would, I'd like to try to attempt to answer tonight. Reformed theologians believe that the second all men does not refer to Adam's fallen race. It only refers to all men, meaning all the elect of God. And they are adamant that the all men in the second half of Romans chapter 5, number 18, they are adamant that it does not refer to the entire race. This morning, we're going to try to answer that question, not from a doctrinal creed, not from a confession of faith, not from a statement or article that someone put together, not through uh, volumes of institutes of religion. We're going to try to answer it from the Bible. How about that for a novel idea on a Sunday morning? So let's get in our Bibles, 1 Timothy 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. Everyone would agree that context is everything. Get 1 Timothy chapter number 2, and also in one hand get 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. Both of those passages together. 1 Timothy chapter number 2, we will start there. And I'd like to show you some context. It says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now I brought you to this chapter for a few reasons. Number one, in verse number one, you have the use of the word all twice. 
And each time the use of the word all shows up, it means something different. How do we get the meaning? From the context. <laughs> and watch. What does it say? First of all, it's first in a series of something. First of all, is that referring, is that referring to a group of people? No. Watch what it says at the end. Be made for all men. Is that all in that context referring to a group of people? Yes. If you just read the Bible and you try to get the context of what is being said, you can see all is being used in one verse with two different meanings. Watch it in number, number, uh, verse number 2. For kings and for all that are in authority. Well, are you a king? Well, we, we worship the king, right? What is the context of verse 2? Those in authority. Now, if you have some type of authority, okay, put yourself in that context. But do you see in two verses, we had three uses of the same word, and each time that word shows up, the context gives us the understanding that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. We have a fourth definition of the word all. It comes up in the characteristic of how we as believers should live. A holy life, a godly life. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Look at verse number 4. And I, I don't think you need four years of theology training to get this. Who will have all men to be saved. Well, does that mean that women can't be saved? Come on! you got to take words in their context. You don't have to be past the second grade to realize this is talking about mankind, do you? I'm telling you, you can take the Bible and preach anything you want. Well, God's just saying men can be saved. No, He's not. We all know that. Do you see how we have all these uses of the word all in the context? It gives us the clear, clear meaning. And to come unto the knowledge of the truth. That's what God wants. That's His will, verse 4. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The mediator is between God and men. Does that mean he doesn't mediate between women? No. It means mankind. Context. Now watch verse 6. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. What does all mean in verse number 6? I'm not trying to be so simple as to say, well, all means all and that's all it means. Because it does mean some different things. As we just saw in 1 Timothy chapter 2, all means all based on the context of the definition all. The context defines it. Maybe that's saying too much to make a simple point. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse number, verse number 14. 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, 
because we thus judge that if one died for the elect only, then only the elect were dead. Except it doesn't say that, does it? What does it say? That if one died for all, then were all dead. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. If Christ is only going to die for the elect, then you've got to read verse 14 how we read it earlier. But we know that Christ didn't die for just the elect. He died for all. How do we know that? Because in the context of verse 14, it says, all were dead. All were dead. Let's pick back up in Romans chapter number 5. Romans chapter number 5. We went through the parentheses earlier in a few lessons, and we said, watch this, verse number 12, Wherefore, Romans 5.12, As by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now there's a semicolon there, and then we... Just finished up the parenthesis between verses 13 and it leads all the way down to verse 17. That parathetical thought we took into its context, but really verse 12, you could read it, or really verse 18, you can read it right after verse number 12. Death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Verse 18, therefore... As by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so the righteousness of one, the free gift, came upon all men unto justification of life. Why was that parenthesis there? If you remember from the last lessons, it was to bring out the much more. We saw that the free gift is so much more than the one offense. By way of review, look at verse 15. Much more the grace of God. See that in the middle of the verse? And the gift by grace. Look at the end of verse 15. Hath abounded, it's an abundance. One offense, but the, abund of, uh, the abundance of grace abounds in all, over all the offenses. Look at verse 16. That the, uh, the free gift, we see that again at the end of verse 16, but the free gift is of many offenses. See that? Last one, at verse number 17. We see uh, in the middle of the verse, look at it, it says again, much more, they which receive what? Abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. That parenthesis really showed us, it kind of parathetical out, so to speak, this idea, theologically, doctrinally, that the grace of God, that gift of salvation, is so much more, it covers so much more, and it's such a higher degree than the one offense where we're all dead. God's grace abounds. The second half of Romans chapter 5, verse 18, 
is not saying, may I say emphatically, the second half of uh, 5.18, even so by the righteousness of the one, of one, the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. It is not saying that all will be saved. Doctrinally, that is not what that verse is teaching. We are seeing the effects of grace outweighing in abundance the effects of the fall. The sun gives light to all. Why are some people blind? 2 Corinthians 4, you don't have to turn there, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not the gospel. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should do what? Shine upon them. Everybody's blind. What needs to be shined on the everybody? The light of the glorious gospel. Get 1 Corinthians 1 and Mark 16. The sun shines on everyone. It's not God's fault that some close their eyes. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Let's get that. And then let's get Mark chapter number 16. 1 Corinthians 1 and Mark Mark 16. Get our spots. And then we'll read the verses so we can flip rather quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 will be in verse number 17. 1 Corinthians 1, 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel to the elect. Is that what the Bible says? Alright, let me try it again. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to not preach the gospel to the non-elect. Is that what the Bible says? No. I'm not sent out to knock on doors, to preach on the street, to hand out tracts, to hold Scripture signs, to do one-on-one conversations, to baptize anybody. We are called as believers to preach the Gospel. Well, some are blind. Preach the Gospel. Some close their eyes. Preach the Gospel. That's the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't get away from that. That's what we're told to do. Not with wisdom of words... I don't care how many theological degrees you have, how many letters you have behind your name. If you're not preaching the gospel, you have taken away the most important thing to our Christian faith. Lest the cross of Christ should be made a non-effect. Preaching the cross to them that perish foolishness. But in us which are saved, it is the power of God. You've got some power. You bring glorious gospel. Go to Mark 16. Mark 16, verse number 15. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to the elect. Nope. Go into all the world. That'd be pretty easy to understand. Every where you can go and preach the gospel 
to what type of creatures? Every single kind of creature you can find. <laughs> That's really a weird creature. <laughs> Preach the gospel to them. <laughs> There's going to be some strange birds out there. You better preach the gospel to that creature. I'm telling you, we serve an everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator who died for His creation. We don't serve a Creator who would have His creation die for Him. You've got a doctrine of sovereign election where some are saved to go to heaven, by default, you have to have a doctrine of reprobation. You have to. How come we don't hear Reformed theologians out on the street saying, I'd like to preach to you the Gospel. However, you may be one of the non-elect, which means it doesn't matter what I say to you, God has foreordained that you are a reprobate and you could be one of the ones of the non-elect that God will drop into hell for His own glory and sovereignty. How come they don't say that until you get into their system and the next thing you know, you've been inoculated with that system of theology? I'd be happier at least if they'd be honest about it rather than slip it in afterwards. Boy, oh boy. Let's turn back to Romans 5. Everybody... Okay, okay, Romans 5, Romans 5. Let's look at that again, Romans 5. Okay. The second half of the verse is not teaching universal salvation. I'd like to read the verse again, Romans 5.18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men, to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Some don't even believe that Christ could have potentially died for all men. Some honestly believe that He just died for the elect. They don't even believe, some of them, that the potential was there for God to die for all. You know why? Whether you like me for this, or whether you hate me for this, or whether you just are in the middle and you're just leaving it, leaving it alone, there's a reason why we teach and preach out of the King James Bible. Because every word of God is pure, and if you don't have all the words, you're going to get something that's impure. The NIV says that it resulted in justification. Now that's a problem, because if there is a definite result, you can see how someone would come up with, there isn't even a possibility that God would have died for the non-elect, because there's a result, there's a definite result that is happening. And that one change can certainly persuade you doctrinally one way or the other. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift 
resulted in justification. Or the New American Standard says the result was. Now that's a changing of the text. And if there's a definite result, you can see how you can come up with a different doctrine. The King James Bible says very clearly, the free gift came upon all men, now watch it, unto justification of life. Now I want you to stay with me here because I want you to look at this verse. This is simple, this is easy, and once you see it, if you haven't already seen it, I believe it'll help us all. Look what it says in the beginning of verse 18. Came upon all men to condemnation. That's the offense and that's judgment. Two, it is joining together men to condemnation. That's what that word to means. It's when you are going somewhere. <laughs> so because of the one offense, guess where you are going? To condemnation. It joins you to that. Two, that's the definition. Okay? What is the contrast? The contrast is, look at the text. The free gift came upon all men to justification of life or unto justification of life. Well, people say, well, unto, it's an obsolete word. It's an archaic word, so we'll just replace it with to. If you do that, you lose meaning. By the way, it's not obsolete because all of us are reading it. And so now it's in modern day use. <laughs> to, I'm drawing your attention to, contrasting with unto. You know what unto means? You are giving something. Something was done and something was given. That is the distinction and the definition between to and unto in the context. To joins lost man to condemnation. It's a joining. That's where you're going. Unto, God extends unto. He gives out a gift. He gives out a gift. Something was done by God. A free gift. It came upon all men. What do you got to do with a gift? Receive it. The free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. There's a giving of something. That unto clearly defines or, 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 or brings out the giving. Giving. John 3.16. John 3.16. Well, you just can't say God so loved the world and think that the world means the world. That's just too simple. John 3. Okay, then let's read verse 15. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. What's contrasted? Perishing with what? Eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave, that's the definition of love, it's a giving, His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What's contrasted? Perishing with everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. 
What does God want to happen to the world? He wants them to be saved. That's why He sent His Son. Now let me ask you this question. What is the issue in verse 15 and 17? Belief. The offer, it's unto justification of life. It's a free gift. It's given. It's, sh it's shined upon you. What's the difference? Belief. 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 You believe or you believe not. Well, it doesn't mean the world. It just means the world of the elect. You know why it means the world of the elect? Because there's other places in the Bible where the world doesn't mean the whole world. Okay, well, let's go to one of those places. Let's go to John chapter number 12. John chapter number 12. Watch this. John 12 verse number 19. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves... Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. The Pharisees are aggravated. Jesus is coming into town, and every, the multitudes, people have come around, and you know what they're doing? They're following Jesus. And the Pharisees are aggravated. They say, oh, the world is gone after him. Now, in the context of that verse, does world mean world? It does. In what contextual definition the context is obvious number one that the Pharisees are over exaggerating something why because they're frustrated that people are following Jesus and not them <laughs> that's a Pharisee you can tell the effects of the wickedness of someone's heart based on how they react when you bring up Jesus Christ. <laughs> you want to talk about the Lord all of a sudden. They're just aggravated. Because people aren't following them and talking about them and you know their belief goes out the window when you tell them that they're condemned already because they won't believe in Jesus. Are there other places where the world doesn't mean the entire world? Yeah. And John 12 certainly is one of them. But to say that John 3.16, God doesn't have the scope of the entire world, is a grave error. A grave error. Look at John 12, since we're there. Look at verse 25. Watch what it says. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. You got a definition of world that means what? I don't think people. I think this world, this system, this what we're in right now. You see how you got a definition of world that can mean a system? Look at verse 31. We'll see it again. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world be cast out. If he's the prince of this world, world doesn't mean people. World means a system. He's, who, is this, who is the prince? Who is ruling this world? It ain't Jesus Christ yet. 
He's ruling in your heart. If He's within you, right? The church, yes, but not this world system. You got world in John 12 and that verse, that means a system that's controlled by Satan. You can't take world and apply it to mean the same meaning. You've got to look at the context. Look at verse number 47. John 12, 47. Watch this. If any, and if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. You think he's saving a system? Or do you think he's saving people? Yeah, that world, that definition contextually. He came to save people. So we have to look at these words in these verses and in the context of the chapter and allow the context to give us the meaning. Last one, John 12, look at verse 32. And, if, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. What does all mean? All. In the context of all, which is all mankind. He wants to draw all. Notice, he initiates. We got all that, right? Pretty simple. Free will. Oh boy. Oh boy. A Reformed theologian will say, God's ability to save you is dependent upon your act of free will. Your act of free will. Go back to the Old Testament. This is interesting. Go to Ezra. I'm going to go past 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and then the book of Ezra will come up. Ezra chapter number 7. Ezra chapter number 7. Keep your finger in John 12, because we're going to slip back there for one minute. But get Ezra 7, keep your finger in John chapter 12. Uh, Ezra 7. Okay. Uh, verse 13. I will make a decree. This is Artaxerxes, the king of kings unto Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace. And at such a time, and so we have verse 13. I make a decree. Hmm. That all they of the people of Israel... We get our context there. And of the priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with thee. You got some folks back in the Old Testament that aren't in Christ because they haven't trusted Christ because Jesus Christ hasn't even showed up yet. <laughs> and they're doing something by their free will. Now how about that? Look at verse number 15. And to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to who? Unto the God of Israel whose habitation is in Jerusalem. They're freely offering something to God. That's an interesting decree, isn't it? <laughs> verse number 17. That thou mayest buy speedily with this money bullocks, rams, lambs, with their meat offerings and their drink offerings, and offer them 
upon the altar of the house of your God which is in Jerusalem, whatsoever shall seem good to thee and to thy brethren to do with the rest of the silver and gold, that do after the will of your God. You have, look at 16, right in the middle, free will offering of the people and of the priest, offering willingly for the house of their God. You got Old Testament saints exercising a free will, and every single one of them are still dead in trespasses and sins. Every single one of them, none of them have been quickened by any spirit. <laughs> none of them have. All those Old Testament saints, they didn't go to hell when they died, but they didn't go to heaven either. They ended up in a place called paradise in Abraham's bosom until Jesus Christ did something on that cross at Calvary. And then He set captivity captive, and then paradise was moved. Until then, everybody's dead. There's no blood that's been shed. But you got free will showing up in the Old Testament referring to actions that Old Testament saints are doing. None of them were born of the Spirit. None of them were born again. They're all dead in trespasses and trespasses. Go to back to John 12. We'll wrap this thought up. John chapter number 12. Look at verse number 24. Verily, verily, I send you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Until that seed falls, nobody gets born again. You know what Jesus Christ is? He's that. Verse 24. He's the corn of wheat. And until He fell to the ground and died, there was no fruit that was produced. Nobody could have been born again. He had to die. He had to fall to the ground. So the Reformed theologian comes back and says, God's saving power is dependent upon your autonomous act of believing and receiving. That's the big hang-up. That's the hiccup. What they say is that you're saying is that God can't save alone. What they're saying is that you're saying you had to give God permission to do so by your autonomous act of believing and receiving. No. God gave me permission to do it. He set it up that way to allow men to be able to believe and receive. They say no. Your action allowed His action to happen. No. God's action made it possible for my action and your action to be able to be performed. Now I'd like to draw this to your attention because this is very important in argumentation or logic, which there's some guys that are extremely good at this. It's called a false dilemma. What's a false dilemma? 
False dilemma is you set up two options. And it, that's the presupposition for the discussion. And you have to choose one or the other. What if there's a third? A third option isn't an option in a false dilemma. I'll give you an example, and then we'll get back to this example. Say, well, if you're not a Calvinist, you're an Arminianist. That's a false dilemma. That says you only have two options to choose from. You're either one or the other. You can't be something else. It presupposes that you have to choose A or B. Well, what if there's C? Well, there can't be in a false dilemma. So be careful of that. Be careful of false dilemmas. What if you're just a Bible believer? That's what I want to be a Bible believer. And you know what? John Calvin sees something and he gets out of a system that's wicked. Good, I'm going to go with that. Great, good Bible doctrine. He sees grace. I see grace. But he's going to depart down some stream that's going to take us so far down river, that's when we get out of the boat. <laughs> you got to do that with everybody. So, God's grace, can it save completely without your autonomous faith act? The better question would be, see, that requires you to choose one or the other. It requires you to answer the question. Is the, is the answer to the question either yes or is the answer to the question no? What if the question's wrong? What if the question's wrong? They'll say, see, grace doesn't distinguish whether you're saved or not. Your autonomous act of believing and receiving distinguishes whether or not you're saved. You see how you have to choose one or the other? Because they set it up. If you say that you can believe and receive, they'll say, well, then grace alone isn't, isn't sufficient. See how that works? you got a false dilemma where you're, the question requires you to choose one of two options. And if you say it's your act of faith, you believe, then they'll say the distinction between being saved or lost is in whether or not you receive and believe. Now go to John 1 for that. Let's, let's go there. Let's go to John chapter number 1. We're trying to get you to think. I know we're going through a lot of Bible. I know we're trying to think deep on a Sunday morning. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> get everybody in the Bible so we can think deep. Look at what it says in verse number 13. Which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. No, we are not saying that God can't save without an act of believing and receiving. What I'm asking to consider this morning is, is that really the way God set it up? I don't believe it's the way God set it up. Look at verse 12. God doesn't will the new birth. We know verse 13. Yeah, it's not. We're not. We can't be born our physical birth. That's not going to do it. 
It's not our bloodline that do it, does it. It's not our will that does it. Of course not. Of course it's the will of, of, of God. Of course it's of God, not of man, verse 13. We all agree on that. But before you get to 13, there's a semicolon. And before you get to 13, there's a verse called verse number 12, which says, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. God doesn't will the new birth until you believe on His name. There's a third option. You can't pinpoint people into two options when there's a third one that's right in the middle and it's the truth. Yes, it's by the will of God. Yes, it's by the grace of God. But yes, God set it up so that man can believe and receive. But as many as... Is that you? But as many as received Him. Have you received Him? To them. Who's the them? The those that receive. To them gave He what? Power to become what? The sons of God. And now you're stuck in this semicolon <laughs> between 12 and 13. And then, will of God saves you. You're not taking away the grace of God. You've set up an argument where you're requiring someone to choose one or the other when there's, when there's, when there's really a third option that's right in the middle and that is true. Go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. You ask the Calvinist when he got saved, he can't tell you. Is before the foundation of the world. <laughs> Where'd you get saved? Before the foundation of the world. <laughs> Where were you? Before the foundation of the world. And how were you in Adam? <laughs> what were you in? Were you in Christ before the foundation of the world? And then when Adam showed up, you got out of Christ, you got in Adam? And then when you, then when you got saved, you got back out of Adam and back, back, got back in Christ? It's ridiculous. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. You don't flip-flop between the two. You're in one or the other. You know what you got in Ephesians 1? Having predestinated us, every time predestinated shows up in, in, in Ephesians 1 and Romans 8, the context is always believers. It's always believers. Predestinated us. Who's that? Believers. Unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good will of His pleasure. Watch this. The praise, the glory of His grace, wherein He hath accepted us in the Beloved. You know what you didn't have in the Old Testament? You didn't have this. Nobody in the Old Testament was adopted. Nobody in the Old Testament was accepted in the Beloved. So what are you going to say? They're all non-elect? I don't think so. Romans 8, predestination says of believers, you're conformed to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what you're predestined to be. In Christ, you're conformed to be His image. It never speaks of unbelievers predestinated in the Bible. It never speaks of unbelievers going somewhere. 
It's always believers to be something. God chose you in Christ. When did that happen? John 1.12. As many as received Him. That's when you got in Christ. When were you elect? When you received the elect. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect. Isaiah 42, it's Jesus Christ. Behold I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect. Who's that? 1 Peter 2, that's Jesus Christ. It's not that I had to give God permission. It's not that my act allowed God's act to, perform, to be performed. It's not that we're saying grace isn't the distinguishing act. Rather, God purposed. He purposed to give the free gift of grace, that free gift of salvation. He purposed to give it to those who would receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. When you receive Christ, when you receive that free gift, you are in Christ. When you are in Christ, you are elect. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the elect. Let's finish in Romans 5 and I'll be done. Romans 5. Verse number 18 is not teaching universal salvation. It's teaching that you can't escape Adam. You cannot without Christ providing the way of escape to you. You're either born of Adam or you're born again. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Adam is the reason why you and I want to sin. Jesus Christ is the reason why you and I want to live a holy life. <laughs> it's because of Him. The seed has fallen. Corn of wheat has fallen to the ground and died. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? But, he has, but as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. Even to them, believe on His name. Thank you for listening to the podcast ministry of Pilgrim Baptist Church. We look forward to seeing you in the next episode. In the meantime, you can sign up for our email newsletter at www.pilgrimbaptist.church.